Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Loopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Today I am doing episode three of five, maybe three of six, maybe three of seven. I don't know how many it'll take on by the time we're all done. But Shane Mahoney uh, is with me again today. Uh, Those of you who know Shane's background know that he is, I, I would say one of the experts on the North American model, on the history of conservation, on an awful lot of things. And the fact that he would take this time, uh, put so much work into the outlines and scripts that he's prepared for this, uh, I'm immensely grateful. Uh, Today, in this third version, or third episode, we're going to talk about the next two tenets of the seven tenets that make up the North American model of wildlife conservation. Uh, These two tenets will be uh, how the markets for game were eliminated or at least reformed at at the most basic sense. And then the, the one after that will be that wildlife can only be taken for a legitimate purpose. In other words, no waste. And we'll get into what is a legitimate purpose and in whose eyes is it legitimate. So... A lot of really good stuff going to be here today, and I really appreciate all of you being here. Appreciate you following along. Hope that you're finding this series worthwhile. Um, we'll be seeking input and and feedback on this process uh, because Shane and I have both worried. <laughs> if you want to, yeah, I'd say we're we're not not worried, but we're wondering if five episodes because you you end up having to exclude so much does five episodes really do it justice um and probably put you all asleep if we do too many more of them but uh anyhow we'll be looking for feedback this series of podcasts is brought to you by our our normal great sponsors who who make this entire podcast available uh starting with loophole optics uh they are huge in, in every way, uh, financially, otherwise, in supporting conservation, hunting, shooting, the things that, that we all spend so much time doing. I hope you go to loophole.com, uh, and when you do look at all of their, their new products, all their great products, uh, a lot of those made right there in Beaverton, Oregon. Uh, also, as Nosler Ammunition, uh, they, uh, again, like Leopold, family-held company, uh, been around a long time, and uh, supporters in so many ways to the things that are important to us. So go to Nosler.com, and you'll see all their their products. As, <laughs> as scarce as products are in the ammunition world these days, they're working nonstop. Uh, I'll be there next week with them. Uh, and uh, I, I can assure you that it's not because of lack of effort on their part. Uh, Mystery Ranch Backpacks, uh, supporting so many things we do, supporting a lot of things that Shane Mahoney does. Uh, if you want to save 10% on your Mystery Ranch Backpack, here's how you can do that. Go to gohunt.com, 
click on shop uh, and then click on brands, I believe it is. Uh, and the brand you're looking for is Mystery Wrench. Put a Mystery Wrench pack in your shopping cart and that and most of the other things in your cart when you check out by using promo code Randy will give you a 10% discount. So there you go. Uh, I love to see people save money. So go to gohunt.com and buy your mystery ranch pack with promo code Randy and save 10%. Uh, my good friend, Corey Jacobson produces the university of elk hunting. Uh, if you want to save $20 on that, uh, and get a lot of elk hunting information, I would suggest that you do that. And the way you save the $20 is use promo code Randy. When you sign up for a subscription, go to elk101.com, click on the university class. And when you sign up, uh, that's a way to save 20 bucks. Uh, Go Hunt is uh, one of the companies that we've been working with a long time. Uh, they are always pushing me to, to do more in the vein of conservation, of access, and uh, you know, the things that Shane and I are talking about in, in this podcast series. And if you want to sign up for their Insider, where you will get access to maps, to oh, everything you need about Western hunting, uh, I would... I'd say go there, and uh, when you do, again, using promo code Randy, it's going to save you some money. Uh, when you sign up for Insider using promo code Randy, they're going to give you $50 of credit in their gear shop to be used for whatever you want. And then uh, in the last six months, we've started a, a subscription platform. Uh, a lot of you have asked for that because, like me, uh, many of you tire of ads and you know that the way you get served ads is that someone builds a profile around your personal activity and that's not something I think you should have to do to watch or listen to our content so I started this platform called Fresh Tracks Plus and if you want to subscribe to that you go to freshtracks.tv and it'll be there for you and with that, I've got Shane on the other line all the way from Newfoundland, Canada. And uh, we're going to talk about these two tenants of the model, the North American model. We, <laughs> it's amazing how many of us in the outdoor space refer it to the model. Uh, it's really, by, by technical name, the North American model of wildlife conservation. And I would say if you get a chance, go check out Shane's book, uh, he and Dr. Val Geist. Uh, did that book uh, about this model. They had a bunch of collaborators in that project who are kind of the foremost experts on each of the topics that they contributed. And you can get that at hopefully your local bookstore, or if not, you can probably get it on Amazon. And uh, you'll be happy to have it. I, I can assure you I've read it multiple times. And uh, with that, I'm going to get Shane on the line here and uh, appreciate all of you being here today. Well, folks, we are here with episode three on the North American model of wildlife conservation. Uh, Shane, how, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to this uh, next round of discussion. So uh, I'm sure it'll be as much fun and as informative for me uh, in thinking about all of this uh, as the first two have been. So looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I, you know, t today we're going to talk about two issues or two tenets of the North American model uh, that 
I think are going to have a lot of relevancy and, and maybe a more tangible feel than, than the two we talked about in the last podcast. Uh, if you haven't picked up those first two episodes, I'd suggest you go out there. Uh, there's a episode one that is a, an overview background and a in-depth understanding of where the model was, you know, what, where its origin is. And, uh, Shane goes into great detail there of explaining that and its applicability in the history. And then episode two, uh, we talked about science as the tool for wildlife policy and the fact that it was an international, is an international resource. So today we're going to talk about something that I think people can really understand is, uh, under this model markets for game are or were and are eliminated. And then um, we have, uh, operated in a manner where wildlife can only be taken for a legitimate purpose. So, uh, Shane, I hope your, Nate, your, your notes are uh, in good shape on this because uh, we could spend an awful lot of time talking about some of these issues. Well, I don't know if my notes are in good shape, but <laughs> I, I, I try to stay in good shape. <laughs> I guess we'll see. I mean, I think one thing to say before we even start, uh, I mean, with every one of these episodes, you know, there will always be a lot that we will not cover. Right. And, and the episodes themselves will raise a lot of questions, um, you know, that, that maybe none of us have thought about before, but simply through the process of thinking and discussing it with one another, you know, these, these things pop up and you say, gee, I wonder, it's funny, I never thought about that before, or I, I should look into that a little bit more. So regardless of how much experience a person has had with this idea of the model, it, it is like a diamond, you know, it, you, you, you turn it to the light and every different angle of it sparkles with something that you may not have seen before. So I think that's just, I mean, that's part of the fun, isn't it? You know, yeah, we, right? A, yeah. So yeah, every, every one of these uh, constructs, if you want to call it a legal construct, are almost like their own organism that's evolving yeah. over time, evolving with changes and adapting. And so that's I think true. with this one, uh, when we get into markets for game are eliminated, um, I'll let you explain it in the most simple terms and maybe you have to give some history uh about how that kind of came about i think we we touched on quite a bit of that in the first one but and then uh you know when you get into this one shane it it always seems to have tentacles that go to a lot of other places where people start asking well what about this well what about that why not this why not that so absolutely uh, true we, we, <laughs> we, we have no shortage of content for, for just this one part of it. But in its most simple terms, can you explain this, this pillar? Yeah. I mean, we have, to, we have to think about this in terms of the context of its time, um, which really was the period, you know, from about, uh, let's say, the 1850s up until, you know, the 1910-1920 period. This was, the, this was the nadir of, you know, wildlife abundance and species abundance, you know, in the context of the Europeanization of the North American continent. This was the period where the culmination of our belief in the limitlessness of wildlife 
and other resources, such as timber, of course, and so on, <clears throat> uh, in Canada and the United States, was finally you know, brought to a sense of stark reality. And uh, it was probably the bison uh, depletions, as much as anything, which finally forced people to realize that wildlife was, in fact, disappearing at a massive scale. And then to reflect on the question why, and to come to an understanding that while there were various factors involved, um, that one of the greatest and you know most most important factors was the unfettered killing and marketing of dead wildlife, and it's it's important to to remark here because this issue of the models and quotation mark uh, emphasis on gain is is something that surfaces and has already surfaced in our previous podcasts and comes up in discussions with people all the time. But of course, there were many species being marketed at that time in vast numbers that we would not consider game today. You know, small uh, songbirds, for example, right. which were killed in massive numbers and stuffed into pies and, you know, in, in restaurants in New York and Chicago and, and, and Boston and other, and other major urban centers. But the idea was that there, whatever other factors were involved – uh, and associated with, with expansion of human enterprise on the continent, there was no doubt that the fundamentally greatest challenge to many species, including game and these non-game species, so-called, that were pursued, was this massive killing for profit. And that massive killing for profit did two things, of course. It, it not only uh, exacerbated and caused and then exacerbated massive declines, in wildlife populations. It also did something else, and we will come to a discussion of this in later podcasts, but in a sense it really privatized the resource, didn't it? Because yeah. the, the private citizen then you know, benefited from this wildlife resource disproportionately, and that private citizen being the one who killed a lot of it and sold a lot of it, and so on and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> so you know, the challenge was what to do about this. And it's important to understand that you know, we not try and <clears throat> personify the model and, and treat it like a person and say, well, the model wag wagged its finger or the model <laughs> did this or, you know, the, the model wept or the model sighed or the model demanded. <clears throat> the model is a conceptual construct of just what happened and what the broad principles that may have guided us are, were, and are. So we had, uh, long before... Uh, Teddy Roosevelt came to fame, for example, or Gifford Pinchot or even George Bird Grinnell in this space that we think about as the model's space, social space. You know, we had activists talking about this issue. Uh, we had organizations, of course, and as I mentioned in a previous podcast, there were hundreds of, of hunting clubs and rec outdoor recreational clubs and so on in the United States, you know, relatively early in the nation's history, in fact, but they certainly yeah. were, became more common as time went on. The New York Sportsman's Club uh, was, you know, probably one of the most prominent early spokes entities against this idea of commercialized use of wildlife. And they, in fact, brought in their own laws that they really? could apply, yes, in the North American space in the period of around, you know, eight, 1845 to 1850. Wow. They actually passed laws there that said, you know, you couldn't do this kind of thing. But, of course, they had limited jurisdiction. Yeah. And my point in raising that is twofold. One is to show that, you know, this, this concern, which eventually 
we meet later in, as I said, at the turn of the century, but a half a century previous to when we saw active policies being enacted, we already had agitation in this space and dedicated work being done. And that's a very important thing because it also shows the kinds of passionate motivation that some of these people who were hunting at the time, and these were hunting clubs I'm referring to here specifically, Mm -hmm. had for this resource. Um, And so, anyway, we had this gradual increasing emphasis on this idea of eliminating these big markets for dead wildlife. That's a very important point. It was for dead wildlife that the markets were really uh, in opposition to. And so, um, we gradually saw, as time went on, uh, more and more efforts, of course, to actually sort of codify this or or to formalize this by uh, you know, bringing in legislation such as the, the vitally important Lacey Act, of course, which eventually made this marketing of dead wildlife sort of illegal. You couldn't move it from one state to another you know, and sort of escape the reach of the law by moving it across state boundaries and so on and so forth. And, of course, you saw this principle enshrined in many other pieces of legislation that people don't often think about with regard to markets and hunting, but in you know the Migratory Bird Convention and Act and so on, there have been a lot of references over time then, beginning from about 1850 up until the Lacey Act period, you know, the early decades of the, of the 20th century, where this idea was reinforced. And it was critical because, again, as I mentioned in the opening podcast here, very few Americans, very few Canadians can appreciate the, 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 the dire circumstances that wildlife was facing in our two countries at the time. And of course, if we had not eliminated those markets, we know what would have happened. Whether they were the markets for for, for bison pelts and hides or or bones, whether they were the markets for bobolinks and sparrows that were being put, as I said, baked into pies, whether they were, you know, the, the punt gun users who were taking waterfowl in massive numbers, you know, in the, in the yeah. swamps and bayous and, 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 and wetlands and so forth. Um, you know, we just simply would have eliminated many, many more species. And the fact is that the scientific evidence, the historical evidence, clearly demonstrates the capacity we had in this regard, not only because the across-the-board declines in wildlife, but things like the passenger pigeon, which again I mentioned, it, it's almost, it was almost inconceivable that we could drive. That was the most numerous bird species on the planet, and we, within a short period of time, just eliminated them. So... The idea really became to close down these markets. And it was not just for game species. It was for any species that was being harvested and then being marketed in large quantities. Now, a couple of really important points surrounding this, of course, is that um, while this did apply to the obvious species, such as the game species as we know them, you know, the deer species and the the waterfowl and the black bears and so on and so forth, and turkeys, whatever. Um, It did not apply, uh, of course, to fur bearers. Mm -hmm. And this is is a question that is often raised and raised legitimately by people who examine this particular tenant of the model and say, well, that's really not true, is it? Because, of course... (laughs) Right? You know, markets for dead wildlife were maintained. They weren't outlawed. 
And there is absolutely no question that there were uh, exceptions made in the case of fur-bearing animals and the fur trade. And a lot of people ask, you know, why was that the case? And for those of us who live in this era, looking back as to why uh, the, uh, the fur trade was not included in the so-called game species and non-game species issues, I think there were probably many reasons why at the time it was not included. Whether they were sufficient, Randy, in the minds of listeners or whether they're not is a completely legitimate question to raise and to discuss. But one thing for certain was there was a a stark difference in terms of uh, what it took to over-harvest those fur bear populations, relatively speaking, in comparison with what it would take with game species. You couldn't just go out and shoot fur bears. You had to spend an enormous amount of time and investment and knowledge, and the technology was very simple, wasn't it? I mean, you you took an animal at a time, didn't you? I mean, you didn't... You didn't open fire on a field of bison and drop 300 of them in one fell swoop. You know, yeah. it, was a, it was a high, high demand, invest, high investment demand kind of undertaking. This was one of the things that, if you will, uh, offered some, some, you know, some kind of uh, buffer between massive over-exploitation in the case of the fur industry. Not to say that fur bears couldn't be over-exploited. We certainly had Mm -hmm. examples where they were. But I think that was one clear issue that uh, people grappled with. The second thing was probably the historical circumstances that prevailed with the fur trade. And just the sheer historical importance it had played in the founding of the two nations. We have to remember yeah. that the fur trade was a, an, enormous, an, an enormous engine. I mean, it, it opened up you know, all kinds of remote fortresses, so to speak, along trade routes and so on. It involved a massive interchange with indigenous peoples and non-indigenous peoples and so on in this, in this, uh, in this process. And of course, the idea at the time that we would use the furs or skins of animals for clothing and for other purposes, which was primarily what it was used for at the time. This was still a very deep and you know, common understanding that this had some necessity, some real value in it. Um, so I think this was another uh, point. And third, I think because the fur trade had been so prominent for such a long historical period, um, I think, too, there was a notion that, you know, we had experience regulating this. You know, it wasn't this big explosion of market hunting that happened all of a sudden and eliminated millions of bison almost overnight. We had been engaged in this harvest and indigenous peoples had been engaged in this harvest for thousands of years, you know, 12, 13, 15,000 years, whatever. The fur bears were still there. We became involved by we Europeans, and still it was there. So I think this is not to defend it or say perhaps it shouldn't be included or whatever, but I think these are some of the rational kinds of thinkings as to why perhaps the fur trade itself did not not fall into the same category, I suppose, as was the case in other places. Uh, Do you think that it is helpful, harmful, maybe agnostic, that we use the term game markets for game are eliminated? Or would we be better off if we said, you know, dead game or wildlife or or 
is is there a way to tweak that that maybe is more reflective of what society would demand of the model today? Um, you mean the actual the way the way the principle is actually articulated? Like, yeah. Well, if you look at the many readings and writings that are, that are out there on the model, that uh, people like myself and Dr. Geist and John Organ and uh, you know Ron Reagan. I mean, I think about a series of authors, you know, that that, that have talked yeah. about this over time. Um, you know, um, everybody uses the wording slightly differently. You know, it's not absolutely consistent that exactly the same wording is used. What I try to use all the time when I write about it is that markets in dead wildlife were eliminated, mm-hmm. but that helps put the emphasis on the dead versus just markets for wildlife were eliminated. Yep. Uh, but it still doesn't solve this apparent uh, dichotomy or discrepancy between the fur bearer circumstance where the animals were killed for food and fur, obviously they were killed, they died, uh, and marketed, uh, versus the marketing of what we call the so-called game species. So it's a little bit hard to succinctly sum all that up in one line, if you will. But the important point, I think, is that we came to recognize that unfettered, unregulated, uh, harvesting of wildlife that was driven by market forces would force many species, a wide suite of species, including species such as songbirds, but also all the way up to the largest ungulates, would very quickly eliminate them from the face of the earth. Yeah. And therefore, something drastic had to be done. Another so to your point, I think, yes, I think we could, of course, work with any of those wordings and try to make them more self-explanatory. Or, uh, But also, I think, you know, in the discussions of this conceptual approach, which is what the model is, it's not a person, um, you know, wagging its finger at us, uh, is, you know, that, we, that we, we try to openly discuss these ideas and say, well, wh- how, why was that the case, you know? And, and should that be the case today? Should we leave that as it is today, or, or should we rethink this? Because another highly relevant issue here, we did not, when we brought in regulated sustainable use for timber, <clears throat> for wildlife, for fisheries, we did not draw a distinction, of course, between, in a sense, you know, who ended up eating something. So if an individual hunter under a regulated circumstance went out and harvested a deer, once he harvested that deer, he could consume it himself, but of course he could share it with his family, and Mm -hmm. to a large extent he or she could share it with friends and so on. But you have to remember that many of the people, uh, including Grinnell, Georgeburg Grinnell, who lobbied against the markets almost continuously uh, in his editorials, in his magazine, Um, and the New York uh, Sportsman's Club, uh, for example, many of those individuals also sort of uh, brought the pot hunter into the same category as the the buffalo skinner kind of thing. So here you had an interesting social perspective (laughs) <laughs> at the rise of the so-called sport hunter or recreational hunter, you know, that sort of said no to the market hunter, but also was saying no to the relatively poor, uh, self-reliant, 
you know, Jeffersonian kind of image of, you know, the, the, the citizen, you know, who relied on wildlife uh, just for food. Yeah. So this was a very interesting uh, debate at the time. And we might look at, back upon that and not only think about the fact that the, you know, this idea of why the fur harvest was sort of left separate from the harvest of game and songbirds and shorebirds and so on and so forth. We might also reflect on the fact that, oh, the pot hunter was also viewed as sort of the enemy of wildlife at the time. And that, of course, included many of the rural poor of the country, (laughs) right? And and that seems a kind of a... Well, elitist and unfair kind of thing at one level, does it not? It, it does, and it's a legacy that's with us today. We yes. have the argument about meat hunting versus trophy hunting. Yes, of course. And, so. I mean, it, it goes that far back. I don't think some people realize how far back that debate started. <laughs> yes, but, but, it, but it did go back that far. And, of course, then we saw the rise of this new sort of cadre of, 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 of hunters and anglers uh, you know, under regulated take and, you know, with all kinds of self-restrictions, uh, you know, imposed uh, on ourselves a fair chase. And let's face it, and to some extent restricted the harvest or even our own harvest. But, of course, one of the primary motivations for over 100 years of having that harvest has been for the pot. I mean, to consume it. <laughs> uh, and in fact, then all, all the states and provinces pass legislation that says you cannot waste the animal. You have to do something with it, presumably eat it. So all of a sudden, the pot takes on a different (laughs) connotation, right, in this this modern era after coming through the knothole of having the pot hunter uh, denigrated, uh, you know, in the same uh, voice, in the same spirit, and at the same time as the, the market hunter was. But I think in fairness in assessing the past, we have to recognize this all was occurring between the, you know, 1850 and say 1920. This was all occurring at a time where we did not have state agencies directly. We did not have very many federal agencies of any kind. We did not have schools teaching something called wildlife management and sustainable use policy and so on and so forth. We didn't have experts in this field. We didn't have strong enforcement programs. We didn't have funding mechanisms. We didn't have universities. So the people, the citizenry who were activists in this movement were really trying to grasp an enormous problem. (laughs) <laughs> and, yeah. and, and do what they could. And so I suppose I would say I stand in awe of what they did, but that doesn't mean I'm so awestruck that I don't feel, well, maybe there were other things they could have done or maybe other approaches they might have taken. But uh, we have to bear in mind the, the circumstances of the nations at the time. These yeah. were still, in many ways, significantly, you know, unknown areas, both geographically and from a policy point of view, for many, many, many people. And what really was the thread that united most of them, whether they were elites or non-elites, whether they were educated or not educated, whatever it might have been, was their passion 
for their countries and their passion for the wildlife that resided there. And that surely was pure. I mean, there, there, yeah. there were beautifully pure elements of that in many, many people, some of whom, Randy, we remember, like the Grinnells and the Roosevelt's right. and so on. But there were tens of thousands. Stories, of, uh, untold stories. of Absolutely. People who made remarkable efforts. Yeah. What, what, in the context of all that, it, it brings me to think about uh, the Lacey Act of 1900. Uh, I'm glad that uh, you know they, they say it that way. And then uh, there's the, I think, was a, an update to that act in 1907. Uh, but <laughs> that that goes back a long ways. I mean, you think about, you know, that's 122 years ago. Uh, and there have been some tweaks and updates to it uh, since then. But the Lacey Act really codified and put in some teeth into this principle about what we can do or how we're going to reform the market forces that were being applied to wildlife. Mm-hmm. And uh, a remarkable story, if you read books about Grinnell, uh, how he forged a relationship with Lacey, uh, Lacey being from Iowa, mm-hmm. and uh, his state at that time, Iowa had been pretty much denuded of wildlife. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I, I, I've never done a deep read into Lacey himself other than just the information that, that you get by reading uh, about Grinnell and Roosevelt and others. Uh, but he being a representative from Iowa, he, he was a, an advocate to this. And, and I try to put myself in the shoes of somebody from Iowa in 1900 and say, you know, I'm going to carry legislation that asks all of my fellow Iowan farmers to make some adjustments to how they do things, how the land is used, how the resource of wildlife is used. And I suspect it wasn't a very popular opinion yeah. <laughs> among some of his voters. Uh, but I guess maybe that's why we call it leadership. Uh, well, you but have to- you know, one, one thing about uh, Lacey, of course, you know, I mean, he was, um, you know, and quite a number of these individuals we're talking about, of course, were associated with, you know, a one of the real centripetal forces that that started to advance this, which was, of course, the Boone and Crocker Club with with which Roosevelt had started and which, you know, Grinnell and others were very early members of and extremely influential members of. And John Lacey was also a member of that organization. And you have to remember that before the Lacey Act itself, uh, he was the driver behind the the Yellowstone Protection Act of you know right. twenty years earlier or so, yeah. um, which was necessitated and required because, of course, you know people were going into the Yellowstone space and you know harvesting elk and other populations for the markets. Yep. And so, again, I mentioned the New York Sportsman's Club, you know, in 1844, you know, doing something at a sort of very prescribed scale, you know, within the limits of their influence or authority. Then we had, you know, the Yellowstone Act, which, which came in, uh, which mm-hmm. applied to a federally established, you know, piece of, of land, this, this, this great park, as we call it. Um, and then, of course, you had in 1900, and then with revisions 
throughout that following decade, you had the Lacey Act. So again, you see the organic nature of these changes, Randy. You know, it didn't all happen with one big sledgehammer. You you had agitation, you had attempts, you had local attempts, you had broader attempts, you had federal attempts, then you had, you know, nationwide attempts and so on and so forth. Then you had continental attempts between Canada and the United States to do exactly the same kinds of things. But people have to remember that even though these things in hindsight seem to happen quite quickly, and in some cases did, there were long periods of agitation and ferment and disagreement, <laughs> right? I mean, no, yeah. As you said, Randy, no one was sitting back welcoming this, you know. I mean, if I was, a, if I was a, like, like Buffalo Bill, you know, if I was making a, a good dollar on selling bison hides, mm-hmm. you know, or selling bison tongues or, or bobolinks or <clears throat> whatever it might have been or passenger pigeons, uh, you know, the last thing I wanted was for somebody to come in and tell me, well, you know what, your business is no more, Right. Uh, so, you know, the, the important thing about the leadership aspect of this is to recognize that they didn't, they, the cadre of people, men and women, and we talked about the women's suffrage movement and its role in eliminating markets for, for bird feathers and so on, you know, these individuals didn't achieve what they did because of a lack of resistance in American society or Canadian society, (laughs) right? It was just the opposite because at the same time that they were, many of the things they began to espouse with regard to wildlife harvest and this idea of, you know, um, eliminating these markets in dead wildlife actually were very anti-American. If you think about it, the, the people who Europeans who came to North America brought with them certain ideas. And those ideas that flourished, especially in the United States, were the ideas of man's dominion over nature, a very deeply religious persuasion about that brought by the Puritans and other sects who came and, you know, strongly influenced the thinking of early European America. Um, The idea that, of course, that um, it was the, the, it was the, the, almost a citizen responsibility to excel economically which is yeah. still part of the American psyche in spades, yeah. right? And, and, uh, and, the, and the idea that, you know, nature was there to be sort of subdued and carved out. I mean, even the Jeffersonian ideal of America, the small-scale farmer everywhere, was about taking nature and bending it to our purpose. Mm-hmm. And so all of those <clears throat> values were deeply ingrained already, and here comes a group of people out of nowhere, you know, and they're not talking about human health or something. Yeah. You know, they're speaking for wildlife. Yeah. And they bring these enormously challenging ideas to the forefront. And lo and behold, here we are. And if we go back to the, the sportsman's club of, you know, 1844 or whatever, we're almost 200 years later, Randy, right now. Right. To, right? And you and That's I are amazing. having this conversation. It is amazing. <laughs> it truly is well, amazing. I, I think it's uh, helpful for you when, when you talk about you know, there was a lot of resistance to market reform. Uh, and when you, just to give uh, an idea of how long Lazy, Grinnell, and others fought to protect the, I'll say protect or change the markets of how railroads controlled wildlife in a lot of respects. Uh, <laughs> the, the railroad guys, uh, were serious about wanting to put uh, a railroad through Yellowstone National Park 
<clears throat> it was 22 years between when the park was founded and when the, the Yellowstone Park Protection Act actually passed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, do any of us have a, a commitment for 22 years for the cause of something that we hold dear against? At the time, you have to remember that the railroads in the 1800s in the United States were the equivalent of the Silicon Valley technology wealth of today. Yep. And they wanted this. They, 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 they felt that wildlife was a, a reasonable commodity to exploit. It, it, it was it was part of their money making scheme, if you want to call it that. So, you know, along comes Lacey and others who say, "Help with you guys. We're we're not going away." And it took them twenty two years to finally get protections uh, in just one little area called Yellowstone. Absolutely, um, absolutely so true. I, I I just yeah. provide that so that people understand that we're we we have a tendency to be thinking about tomorrow or next week. Uh, these folks were thinking about, okay, it takes 20 years. I guess it takes 20 years. We're not going away. <laughs> well, 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 I mean, I, I think it's, I think it comes back to the fact of what we discussed, you know, in the, in the opening podcast of this series, I firmly believe to this day that if these ideas Every idea we have has to be hitched to some kind of engine, you know, some kind of wagon that's bigger, perhaps, or more powerful or more agile than the idea itself. And and I really believe that this idea of conservation would never have succeeded except by a really set of amorphous conditions that coalesced. It became attached to the idea of nationhood. And it became attached to the idea of citizenship. And I think that explains a lot about what you reference here, Randy, that the the commitment was not just about wildlife in a sense. It was also a commitment about this is what I stand for as a Canadian or as an American. I stand for many things, freedom, you know, and free speech and, you know, all all kinds of things that I stand for, uh, freedom of religion, whatever. But, you know, one of the things I stand for, and this is a remarkable thing, one of the things I stand for are these wild creatures and these wild places and the traditions that, that we hold dear in association with them. I mean, in some ways, when you think back on this and you reflect on it, you know, it's all a bit odd and miraculous, isn't it, that that, that, that <laughs> became so important. There were other big issues, right? There was strife and inequality and political movements and the rise of unions and, you know, yeah. labor forces and, uh, you know, international geopolitics and all these kinds of things. And yet through it all, uh, this idea of not losing our wildlife resources became as important as anything yeah. to some of the most influential people, including presidents of the United States and prime ministers of Canada, as anything right. else. Well, I'm, I'm going to roll the hands of time forward to today, Shane. Yep. Uh, and I, I suspect you'll have a very good perspective of, some might say there's some inconsistencies uh, with some of the activities of today. You know, we have a market of buying and selling uh, deer herds. Uh, we have restaurants that can sell 
out for venison that is raised domestically. Um, some might even extend that to say, hey, wait a second, we're selling taxidermy, we're selling shed antlers. We're, uh, and I, I'm sure that's such a, a crazy, you know, or, <laughs> you know, it, it's a path that has so many rabbit holes, we can't cover them all. You know, some will say, well, Randy, what about, you know, the wild fish stocks? You know, see, you know, we got billion dollar industries around wild fish. And so is there any, any way to, to address that? Or is it just the adaptability and, and the well, being responsive to what society is, is doing? Well, I mean, I think, I think the short answer for me about questions like this um, first of all, from a philosophical perspective, there's seldom a human intervention that does not have some inconsistencies or some exceptions around mm-hmm. it. Um, but but to, to move from that broad generalization into this specific uh, topic, I mean, there are substantive differences. Let's take the one you raised and maybe listeners will raise between wild stocks of fish and wild stocks of terrestrial wildlife, including freshwater fisheries, for example. Well, again, we have to look at the historical circumstances and we have to look at the way oceans and seas have been looked upon within international law versus, you know, what the, ter- the terrestrial environments of a nation are. They are they are controlled by the nation, you know, yeah. but the seas, we've had many, many attempts over the last couple of centuries to figure out how to manage those. And wars. Uh, and- <laughs> and, yes, and so on. Uh, but having said that, I think the comparison and the question is very valuable for a number of reasons. Number one, the productivity, of course, of the oceans is... I mean, as somebody who lives on an island surrounded by the Northwest Atlantic, um, it has never ceased to amaze me that these oceans can continue to provide what they do provide, given the amount of harvesting pressure that's out there. No terrestrial system, certainly not in the temperate world, the world in which we primarily live, could possibly produce this kind of harvestable offtake. In other words, our chances of depletion in the oceans have been bad enough, and we've done some very terrible things. But if we applied, you know, the kind of pressure we could to terrestrial wildlife, of course, we would, we would eliminate it very, 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 very quickly. You know, it's, it's very easy to eliminate herds of caribou or, you know, populations of elk or whatever. We know today, if we just left everybody to go out and shoot their elk as they wished, there'd be no elk left very quickly. We know this. Right. So there is that difference. Um, there is also, of course, uh, a relative perspective. If you, if you look at global fisheries or even the fisheries that occur around the margins of the continental shelves of countries like Canada and the United States, just the sheer food dependency of people you know, that is tied to that harvest is, is enormous. And, of course, to eliminate it in any way, shape, or form would require massive upheavals in our food production systems, massive unemployment, massive food insecurity, and so on and so forth. So at some level, there are realities here that we have to examine. Having said that, I very recently had a long discussion about this and have written articles about this very fact that some of the principles that we apply in the terrestrial space with respect to harvest and restrictions on harvest, I think should be looked at and applied more rigorously in things like commercial marketing of fish species. For example, 
one of the one of the tenants associated with the harvesting that we do allow for wildlife in Canada and the United States is that you don't waste and also that you don't target other species. When you go out to hunt your elk, if you come across a mule deer and you don't have a license or a tag for mule deer, you don't just shoot it because you happen to, you know, on my way there, you know, I kind of shot him and, you know, but, you know, no, but I mean, this happens every day and every minute, every second in world fisheries where people harvest, they take up these big trawls, there's all kinds of non-target species there, they just throw them away or they try to hide them or they do whatever they do with them. And then, of course, you have circumstances where you have a permit, I have a permit for a moose, or you have a permit for an elk or whatever it might be. You have one animal, you have one chance within a season to take that animal. And if you get it, great. And if you don't, well, that's too bad. But think about how it works in terms of world fisheries. You know, you have a ship that, let's say, can carry 250,000 metric tons of fish or 100,000 tons of fish, whatever the number might be. Right. And all of a sudden, in the hold, they have, you know, 98,000 uh, tons or 98% of their hold is full. And they know if they make another haul to get the 2% they need, they're going to get, you know, a huge amount of other fish that they simply won't be able to take on board. And they just let them go and they're all dead. They all die. Right. So I really believe one of the underbellies of this question of comparison between marine and terrestrial systems really is about questioning some of the practices at sea that ought to be curtailed. But there are, as you point out, many other things that are marketed. Now, I see a vast difference between somebody going out and harvesting shed antlers, which are fall each year from these deer species and you know it doesn't involve the death of the animal there is no harvest of the animal itself that takes place here but there surely is a harvest of a of a product from the animal but you know outside of the fact that you're taking away things from the natural environment that would degrade and provide minerals and so on and so forth back to the soil leaving aside that 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 point you really are not endangering the wildlife are threatening the living wildlife in any way by that particular harvest, are you? So, right. so that's one that sort of stands out to the side. Now, the other ones that you mentioned, however, the raising of deer or other species in a captive circumstance, this gets us into a whole big, <laughs> big question of what's right and what's not right. Genetic yep. manipulations, disease transfer, escapes into the wild, and so on and so forth. And... Okay. As I mentioned in the opening podcast on the model, one of the main reasons why Dr. Valerius Geist, who coined the term, brought this forward in the late 1980s and early part of the 1990s was he was so concerned about this particular market intrusion for captive wildlife um, that he wanted to prove we had a system in place and that he believed those markets in wildlife, the game ranching markets, if you will, would actually threaten not only the wildlife resource through these genetic manipulations, transfers, etc., but that it would isolate the economies that were based on the living animal and that it would lead to disease transfers. And he could not have predicted CWD because he couldn't name that disease because no one knew about these prions and so on. But he yeah. was dead on the money that there were going to be novel diseases that would arise as a result of this experimentation. And so this is an area 
of great debate and discussion. And it also begins to lead us into the issue of the privatization of wildlife, which is a big concern, obviously, legitimately a big concern for many people. And so the, that I view as a real challenge to the principles of the North American model. Uh, and, you know, we have seen in many states and provinces that most individuals and groups who support game ranching try to move wildlife, don't they, out of the jurisdiction of the state wildlife right. agency and into yeah. the jurisdiction of the agricultural agencies right. and so on. That's Why? True. Because they know it is in conflict with many established principles with respect to wildlife use and harvest. But, um, you know, this idea of markets, uh, it's complicated because yeah. we look at the fact that you cannot sell game meat. But we do have superabundant species. We do have local superabundance mm -hmm. of things like wild you know, hogs. Wild hogs. Canada geese in some, you know, in some mm -hmm. cases, uh, white-tailed deer in some cases, etc. And the question that comes to any thinking person is, particularly somebody who consumes a lot of wild meat and loves it and wishes we in some ways could, could have more of it, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and have more people benefit from it, you ask yourself the question, you know, well, are we not at a different place today than we were 120 years ago when we didn't have enforcement, uh, you know, uh, officers and we didn't have funding mechanisms, we didn't have state agencies, we didn't have wildlife regulations? Are we at a place today where, on some kind of restricted or experimental basis, particularly for circumstances where wildlife is superabundant, snow geese are another example, where instead of just killing them or trying all kinds of extraordinary efforts to move them or do something, <laughs> yeah. you know, wouldn't we be better to think about some way of making that meat available? Now, we do that for programs for people who are disadvantaged in our communities, you know, Hunters for the Hungry and various other programs, Hunters and Farmers for the Hungry, whatever. Yep. We do that. But, you know, I sometimes think about in this context of a public resource you know, say a single mother or a single father, you know, who's striving to provide, you know, good quality food for their children and meat being a, a significant component of that. And if, we, if, if there are these opportunities for this surplus wild meat in some circumstances, should we not at least try to grapple with this question and explore how that might benefit more people in society and not just the hunter necessarily. Right. So I think it's a legitimate question for people to revisit. I do. Uh, and some people consider that blasphemy on my part. But, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're going we're gonna to get some emails on that, Shane. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you know, I, I think that we have to be open to these kinds of considerations. If I had a choice between, you know, well, do we simply slaughter, in some cases, excessive wildlife and leave them to rot, or, I don't know, I maybe feed them to pets or whatever is use is made of them. Um, and if we have very, very tight regulations... And we have experiences in places like Europe where this is regulated and works. Um, I guess the question is uh, a reasonable one. 
to pose, should we not at least think about this question? I'm not saying I'm in favor of wholesale markets or anything of that nature. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. And I'm not in favor of game ranching in the main. Uh, and I want to make that clear. But I am mm -hmm. saying that um, if we have, by virtue of our efforts over the last 120 years, created some unexpected circumstances where we actually have superabundant wildlife populations relative to the social current capacity, um, what do we do with those animals? And wasting them is not an option for me. That's for sure. So, uh, I have a lot of friends who I, I engage with regularly because they, they bring some perspectives exactly to this. And I'm always fascinated by some of the things they throw out there. And I always leave the conversation and think about it. And I can't say that my mind ever has changed, but it forces my mind to think about things differently. Mm -hmm. uh, very often... The case is made that, well, if we allowed some privatization of these wildlife resources, whether they're nuisance or whether they're whatever, it would secure the future of these wildlife. It, it would give incentive for people to have uh, you know, better habitat and more advocacy for them. Uh, we, we can argue if that's the case or not, but I'm wondering if, it, if you know of any countries, localities where privatization and, and the benefits of maybe markets or commercialism that come with privatization. Is there any place where that's held up as, hey, this is actually beneficial? And I know we're getting into something here that's going to create an entire storm of uh, people saying, you guys have lost your mind. Uh, but I'm always interested in what's working elsewhere because I, I I don't know. I don't know what I don't know, but I'm smart enough to know that there are things I don't know, and I want to find out from people who do know. Uh, the, the, yes, the, the short answer to that question is yes. There are examples, hmm. um, and the examples are, however, um, they are complicated too. So let me, and they have their own complex history. So let me give you what is one of the best examples of where a kind of privatization uh, model has work to do, you know, some, some of the very same things we work to do. We had wildlife depletions. We wanted to have wildlife recovery. Then we wanted to sustain, you know, abundant wildlife populations and find a way to develop uh, a model, if you will, that would allow that to continue in relative perpetuity. So those were, the, those were the achievements. We wanted to recover diminished wildlife and restore habitats. We wanted to build populations up to a point where they were abundant and safe, you know, from extinction and from vulnerable catastrophic events. Um, and then we wanted to find a way to hopefully sustainably use those populations for the benefit of all society, both for people who wish to consume virtually in terms of food and those who wish to consume visually or by visitation or whatever it might be, um, um, and then to build a, an architecture, a system of support structures that would allow that to continue sort of in perpetuity. I mean, I think these were some of the lofty goals that we strive, strove for in North America and achieved. Well, let's take a country like South Africa. 
South Africa has a a, a very abundant, you know, wildlife uh, uh, diversity. Um, it went through a period of quite massive deterioration in the abundance of of many, many, many species. Hmm. Uh, it looked for a way to recover those and to sustain them and to build a model that would find a way to sustain that abundance over the very long period of time. This involved, you know, species that were, were critically endangered, uh, some, some species that were so near extinction that it was almost impossible to imagine they would be recovered, and there were other species that were not in such dire consequences. The model in South Africa is very much a private land-based model. And there, in that country, of course, the, the owners of the, uh, of the lands were, you know, at one time, agricultural, uh, domesticated, you know, animals were raised. Uh, they were replaced with wild species that were introduced to those lands. The cattle and goats and sheep, essentially, in the main, extensively, were moved outside and wildlife was brought back in. And that history is very well known, and it led to a massive recovery in the abundance of wildlife in the South African context. And so, and, and a huge part of the business now is for either biltong hunting, which is, is, is for meat by, by local people, by people from the country who, who, who hunt there uh, for their own purposes, and of course the international hunting that is done in South Africa where somebody from the United States or Canada or around the world goes there and hunts. The point is that the meat from all of those animals is marketed within the country and is quite accessible. So they are able to sell that meat under you know, restrictions and guidelines and so on and so forth. So you can go into a restaurant in a hotel in South Africa and you can consume Hemsbach or zebra or you know, impala, a wide variety of species. I mean, I've been in restaurants where you know, you've had your choice of six or eight different kinds of, of wild meat, all of which is exquisite. It's absolutely fantastic. It's clean, it's, mm. it's, it's well handled and so on. So the point is that that model is vastly different from the North American approach, and that model is based essentially on uh, a, a, a private uh, a model system where the marketing of the dead animal, the marketing of the meat, is part of the equation. There still is the marketing of opportunity to access the living animal. The hunter pays a fee. You know, if, I'm a, if I go there right. to hunt, I pay a fee to somebody and I have a chance to harvest an animal, etc. But there's also the marketing of the dead animal in the sense that, you know, the hides or the meat or, or whatever can actually be sold as a commercial commodity. Now, I did a film in South Africa a number of years ago that detailed all of this and got to see, you know, this, 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 this activity working firsthand. And, there, you know, it has worked. It has been successful. And there are other places in the southern African region, in places like Namibia, for example, where this has also been applied, and, and other places. Uh, and in some cases with startling recoveries of highly endangered species, such as black rhino, for example, but other species as well. And um, so it has not only worked for the kind of standard ungulate that one might hunt, it has worked for endangered species as well. 
Uh, it's worked for you know Cape Mountain zebra and a whole variety of species that were on the verge of, of elimination from the planet. So it has succeeded in recovering wildlife. It has succeeded in recovering wildlife habitat to the extent that domestic livestock are not grazing it down as domestic livestock can. Uh, and it has now a sustainable abundance of wildlife that is based on consumptive use. But of course, there's also viewing, Randy. You know, people come there to see the large you know, abundance of wildlife and so on and so forth. So the, the answer is explicit that, yes, there are examples where this has happened. Now, this is why in a lot of work with the model in international forums, I point out that just because a model is successful somewhere doesn't mean it can be successful everywhere. Our history and our culture, our circumstances are unique, just as they are in South Africa. You know, the landowners to which this model applies, the people who own the majority of the land on which wildlife resides, are white uh, European uh, descendants, obviously. Uh, and, you know, this, this of course, um, was born out of, you know, obviously tremendous racial tensions and circumstances that we don't perhaps need to go into in great detail. And in a sense, that very much does it not parallel in some ways exactly what happened with the Europeans arriving in, in North America or in the New World. Yeah. Um, but, uh, of course, the, the attitudes and views that were brought from Europe and transplanted to North America grew up in a very different circumstance than the values and views that were brought by Europeans to, for example, South Africa or the southern regions of Africa. And as a result of that, you have, you know, different models that become, if you will, acceptable uh, yeah. and become the standards. They become the norms of the society there. So I think if we were to suggest to, uh, you know, the South African landowners that suddenly their models should be turned upside down and that they they would not have access to this and that it would all be turned over to the individual pursuing, you know, the hunting opportunities and so on as a majority model. I think they would say, what, you know, I have invested all this time and money and effort and have generations on this land, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, similarly, if you suggested to bring totally the South African model to North America, you can imagine the kind of tensions <laughs> that, that, that would arise. But having, yeah. but having said that, we can look at some states in the Union and some provinces where, of course, very large amounts of the land is privately owned. Right. Uh, let's take Texas as an example. Uh, and where, you know, the way the model is applied you know, is somewhat different, isn't it? And you brought this yeah. up in our first podcast. You know, it's not like it's perfectly identically the same everywhere. Um, and this, too, at one level, is a cultural phenomenon. You know, Texas has a culture, just like Montana has a culture, and Tennessee has a culture. I mean, let's face it, that's true. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Uh, and those cultural differences, and land ownership in particular, can make a vast difference if you have a state that has primarily public land versus a state that has primarily private land, you can pretty much expect that there are going to be variations on this North American model theme <laughs> played out in those circumstances. Right? So short answer, absolutely, there are cases. And of course, in Europe, as I mentioned, in many countries in Europe, you can buy game meat in 
many different forms in many different ways. And private landowners do have, you know, great uh, rights with respect to uh, to wildlife, with respect to, uh, in some countries more than others. But, of course, this again, this idea that the landowner, who were the wealthier people, should control access to wildlife, was one of the things that when many Europeans, the founding Europeans in particular, came to North America, they said never. Will that be the case? Right. Yeah. That was an affirmative statement that has been made multiple times throughout the history of this continent. Uh, both yes. By the people, by legislation, often by the courts. Yep. Uh, that, that <laughs> make it very clear that that was not the intention to, to be the case on, yep. on the North American continent. So. But before we leave that point, just one other thing. You know, it depends, doesn't it, Randy, very much um, what we put in our mind's focus. If we put in our mind's focus the idea of my rights as a human being, <clears throat> excuse me, my rights as a citizen, we can perhaps see the light, you know, look a, a particular way. If we put what is the best alternative for wildlife in a particular circumstance? We might see the light slightly differently, mightn't we? Yeah. So, you know, this, this is a real question, too, uh, in all of this that we're trying to cover in this podcast series. Where, do, where does the human intervention and the human right and the human dimension and the right of citizenship and... The, the, the conservation of wildlife and wild places and healthy lands, you know, how do they strike a balance? Yeah. And, and I think that might be what this tenant is trying to get at is the recognition that we want to have a vested interest of our citizen in wildlife. But in order to do that in a sustainable manner, we have to have sustainable harvests. We have to have regulations that provide for that. We maybe have to have some market reforms to eliminate the pressures that were that were brought to bear, and all that becomes part of this uh, effort towards conservation, which is the sustainability. Or as Ben yeah. Joe would have said, yeah. the greatest good for the greatest number over the greatest period of time. Yeah. I mean, it's so, not a simple piece of business, is it? <laughs> no, right? this is, this, the tax code that I deal with every day is far simpler than, than, than this. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I think in this first part where we covered, uh, uh, you know, the, the way it's written, it says uh, markets for game are, are eliminated. I think we've uh, made it pretty clear that, it, uh, that maybe we should have used the term reform uh, or to take the pressure off wildlife uh but we've covered a lot of topics that are at least touched on them uh that we'll get into this next piece and in the next piece uh, or the next tenant that we're gonna uh, talk about some might say hey you can't waste wildlife that might be the most <laughs> shortened way to say it but uh we've always held in our model or in the the structure the architecture that our model is made up of is that Wildlife can only be taken for legitimate purposes. And then, again, that, that touches on a lot of things we've already talked about, and we'll, that'll touch a lot of things that we will talk about. But if you had to, in its most simple version, uh, simplest terms, 
explain what we're trying, what that pillar means and what we're trying to accomplish with it. Um, I mean, I think it, it made a great deal of sense to sort of talk about these two, uh, these two pillars, if you will, or these two tenets of the North American model as they're described uh, together, because, you know, the idea of excessive killing for, for profit uh, was one aspect of sort of the end game in this interaction with wildlife where it was going to be harvested. But a second aspect of that, obviously, well, if, if we are going to modify the markets, and I would stress in dead wildlife, I mean, they, there was no attempt, by the way, to control markets on the living wildlife. We can come to that as well yeah. here. But um, if we are then going to allow harvesting, and as we said in the first episode, you know, one of the geniuses here was to, if the problem was killing them, why just not all that and killing but in fact, the regulated harvest was viewed as a way of incentivizing people to keep wildlife. But the question then obviously became, okay, what are the circumstances under which it is legitimate to harvest wildlife? There mm -hmm. must be something that we can see as, you know, kind of a broad standard for this. Because, again, let's say we say something like, you cannot market dead wildlife. You can't go out and shoot a pile of things and sell them. You know... But if we don't put sort of some kind of guidelines around personal harvest of wildlife, then presumably somebody can go out and just shoot an elk and just leave it there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, that, you know that. Yeah. No. And so if anybody was on the conservation train at that point, that was something they didn't want to see take place. And so the idea became that we sort of need to talk about this idea of legitimate use and legitimate use gradually through, in some cases, law, and in many cases, public acceptance before law or after law and legislation and in many policies became, you know, for the kinds of personalized use for, for food, for example, for fur. Obviously, we've touched upon that with respect to the fur trade. And also, of course, in defense of, of, of property or in defense of life. In other words, if you were being attacked by a grizzly bear, you know, uh, that, that seemed to be a legitimate reason to fire upon the animal because, you know, if you didn't, uh, you might live another day. So, um, so the idea was to, to, to assure that, that there was a, a non-frivolous reason, a non-frivolous reason for taking the life of any animal. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember that many of the people who, who led this and, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very open about my emotive attachment to animals. Uh, I've met a lot of hunters over my years of lecturing about this that have either been very reluctant to admit that they have this emotional tie to animals, uh, are afraid of using the word I love them or anything like that because they're afraid, you know, they, I don't know, they'll shit all their musculature at once or something. Uh, <laughs> and, and be quite, you know, can be quite critical of people who speak about it. But many of the people who led this, this, this movement, you know, were, were, were fanatics about wildlife. I mean, they just, they just love seeing them. And so yeah. naturally, they, they didn't want this kind of wasteful discard. And so this legitimate purpose was also conjoined, of course, with all kinds of laws about wastage, right? You, not only could you not, in your motivations, be frivolous, that you're just going to kill them for any reason, but we're going to bring in laws to tell you that you're not going to waste it, even if you wanted to. You know, you're going to bring that deer, you're going to bring that elk, you're going to bring that whatever out of that. We can't force you to eat it. 
No, we, we can't force you to do that. But we can force you to go through all the necessary steps to take that animal out. If you want to haul it all out on your back with its gut still in there and not half prepared for consumption, you know, that's kind of up to you. <laughs> but, the po- but, but the point is almost everybody was going to eviscerate the animal, you know, and get it as light as possible to bring it out because that was the law. And it's one of yeah. the most important conditions and circumstances and it's often not thought about and given enough emphasis in the model that this was really an attempt to to deal with the idea of respect this was really a, trying to get at this idea of respect for these creatures and for and for what they were giving us and for and and, and also for the for the enormous blessing of just living in a space where they were abundant and where you could harvest them for these various purposes. Um, and, uh, and so I think that the, the, the killing for legitimate purpose is a really, really vitally important tenant because at its margins, there are all these other values that are being attached Fair chase became identified with this same kind of thing for legitimate purpose, but there was a legitimate way, Randy, of harvesting too, right? Yeah. You, you, you had to do it in a legitimate way and where you did not try to provide so much advantage to the, to the primate doing the hunting um, that the natural escape abilities and capacities of, of the prey, so to speak, were not given a reasonable chance of, of avoidance, of escape, and so on and so forth. Um, so here we had the conjoining, really, of an ethos around hunting in particular, in other words, or anything that involved the actual killing of an animal, that we had to have this legitimate purpose for food, for fur, for defensive property or life, or things of this nature, um, and that when you personally did take the life of an animal under a regulated system of harvest, you respected that animal, both by getting well-trained to use your firearm and to know the animal itself, and your shooting distances and comforts and so on. Um, that you also, however, once you harvested the animal in a, in, a, in a legal way, that you actually made as much use of that animal as you possibly could. And this got at a whole series of values that are much debated and are much at the heart of many of the controversies surrounding hunting today, <laughs> which is what's your motivation, uh, Randy Newber, your elk hunt, oh, right? That's you know. a, I, I would say that's probably the, the biggest question, or maybe it's not a question that's specifically asked, but it's an implied question anytime there's a critique of what we do and how we interact with wildlife and our consumption of wildlife. Uh, and it kind of gets me to another topic, or maybe not another topic, but uh, one of the multiple trails leading from this this tenant is, uh, you know, hunters and anglers are going to have a way that they define legitimate use. But as we'll get into in the next podcast about public trust doctrine and who are the beneficiaries of the public trust being all citizens of that state or that province, whether they hunt and fish or whether they don't hunt and fish. Uh, you know, we start using terms like legitimate purpose. Uh, can, you know, the, and the people want to split us into the consumptive, non-consumptive camps, uh, stuff like that. 
And so the question starts getting asked of us who hunt and fish. And very often it's asked of us by non-hunters who are non-anglers, who are beneficiaries of this public trust. And it creates a whole series of, of debates, of issues. You know, as all of a sudden we get into things like coyote hunting contest where we have other beneficiaries of the public trust saying, look, that's not a legitimate use. And so we end up with legislation. We end up with lawsuits. We end up with judicial decisions trying to plow forward a path. Maybe it's the same path. Maybe it goes this way or it goes that way. But it's trying to be responsive to what the norms are that uh, a society that's ever-changing has on quote-unquote, the legitimate use of our wildlife resources. Mm-hmm. It seems like the, the non-hunter, non-angler, if I was having a, a discussion with them, they're going to answer that completely differently than yeah. if I'm around my hunting camp or fellow deer hunters or elk hunters. Well, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, and... I think it is a vitally important point that we will come to, as you said in a later podcast, that the idea is that, you know, wildlife doesn't belong to anyone, but it belongs to everyone, right? Yeah. And uh, everyone includes, uh, you know, the approximately, what, uh, 96% of the people in the United States of America and Canada who do not hunt today as yeah. well as the three and a half to four percent to do. Um, um, and so I think it's a totally legitimate question for people who are non-hunters and non-anglers uh, to ask, you know, um, you know, what about me in the sense that what I do, let's say I'm a hiker or I'm a rock climber or a kayaker or bird watcher or whatever, I can say that in that activity – while I do have an environmental impact, like everybody who does anything does, I do not take the life of any individual animal during that activity. You, on the other hand, the hunter or the angler who keeps you know, the fish, whatever, uh, and the hunter in every case, um, you do uh, do this. So the question in their minds becomes, why should that be the case? Because at some level, aren't you diminishing you know, my opportunities in some way by killing that bear or killing that elk or whatever it might be. We live in a pluralistic democracy. We, it's one of the great things of both Canada and the United States. And we do have a public trust doctrine that applies to all citizens. And so these are foundational questions that we are going to have to continuously grapple with. But we also have to point out that we live in a society that requires many things. It requires circumstances that are ecologically capable of providing for us fresh water and air and so on and so forth. We have to uh, rely on the natural systems one way or another to produce our food, whether that's through agriculture or large animal husbandry practices, industrial raising of livestock or whatever it might be. 
Um, and for many people, we have, you know, or for a percentage of people, we have the ap- option of actually harvesting food themselves. In a democracy, in a pluralistic approach to things, if there is a way of doing that sustainably and so on, uh, and there is no attempt to restrict others' access as a result of that, to view wildlife or to photograph wildlife or to, you know, witness wildlife, then, you know, this is, and at the same time, it provides healthy food to people who otherwise would buy that food from other systems that can be said are arguably not as sustainable. Uh, Then I think this is one of the ways in which we begin to see a number of these debates come together. Number one, the idea that the people who are harvesting this wildlife are harvesting it for a legitimate purpose. And one of those primary purposes that they are harvesting that wildlife for is food. I argue, as a result of the Wild Harvest Initiative, you know, other activities that I'm involved in, that this is sort of the most important uh, legitimizing uh, approach to the harvest of wildlife that we have, that we actually consume the, the, the animal, and that we, 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 we therefore, to some extent, uh, satisfy the sustenance requirements we have and our families have to do this. Um, but I would say as well that this, this debate, uh, you know, puts ever more pressure on the hunting community, of course, to demonstrate that it is pursuing wildlife in the right way and for legitimate purpose and making use of the animals that, that are in fact harvested. I could make an argument, for example, that if the three and a half percent, the 12, 15 million people who who hunt in Canada and the United States and the 37 million or so who fish in Canada and the United States, if they all stop tomorrow and stop utilizing all of that wild protein from fish and terrestrial based wildlife, and suddenly turn to demanding all of that be replaced by industrial sources, that we would have a very interesting set of risks and positives and negatives, Uh, you know, very interesting set of equations Mm -hmm. to balance out here. Furthermore, we have to think about benefits to society. And we know that in this question of when we're utilizing animals legitimately in the harvest, the, the sustainable harvesting of them, by hook and by crook and by various processes, that community of users of wildlife, the sustainable harvesters of wildlife, have become fundamentally important as supporters of wildlife conservation in the main, both through the monies that they spend, the organizations that they found, the wildlife habitat that they secure, whether we're talking an elk foundation or a Ducks Unlimited, the the wildlife populations that reestablish in the case of Wild Sheep uh, Foundation, the efforts that it makes and so on and so forth. We have to recognize that, that billions of dollars for conservation Billions, truly billions of dollars in conservation have been applied that would not have existed except for this particular uh, uh, group in society who, along with everybody else, are part of the public trust, right? They are the beneficiaries. (laughs) They they also are part of the beneficiaries. And I would also point this out, which is often overlooked. Um, I have no difficulty understanding an anti-hunting position. I never have. I understand how people just cannot see how that can be done. The idea that Shane Mahoney would willfully and consciously go out of the morning on an autumn day and harvest a magnificent animal, a moose that's, that's standing there, silhouetted, you know, in the early morning sun. 
I don't have really a problem, Randy, with understanding why lots of people might find that a difficult thing no. to imagine. Um, no. But you have to realize that despite uh, criticisms and despite the realities that I've pointed out of positive incentivized conservation action on the part of the hunting and angling publics, those publics never in my reading, in all of my reading, I really have never come across a strong argument being made by those utilitarian groups, I would say, the hunting and angling publics, to say, okay, you know, we, pay, we paid a lot into this. We help support wildlife in a lot of ways. We utilize the animals. You know, we, we, we use them for legitimate purpose. We do all those kinds of things. We do it legally. It's regulated by our governments and so on and so forth. And we've provided all this money. And by the way, we want all that wildlife for us. I cannot find a single example of where that was reasonably or forcibly argued by any user group in the angling community or in the hunting group that said, okay, and now we want it all. Right. You know, we're no. going to take that away from the general public who want to see it or photograph the elk or just be amongst them or whatever. So, again, I come back to this idea of a pluralistic democracy at one high level. Um, we have laws that have been brought in that were, that were vital uh, to the early recovery, to the rescue of wildlife, and which have persisted for 100, 120 years, whatever line we may draw which has provided enormous amounts of benefit in terms of wildlife protection, wildlife habitat enhancement, wildlife habitat uh, securement, uh, providing funding for all kinds of wildlife investments, including in non-game species, let me add. Uh, And when I package all of that together, of course, I don't have any difficulty in seeing a legitimate, purposeful, reasonable, non-frivolous, important role for the hunting and angling communities. But let me also say this. We are not the, by say we, because I am a hunter and I am an angler, as you know. Mm-hmm. We are not the sort of uh, uh, proprietors of conservation just right. to ourselves. There are lots of people who don't believe in necessarily what we do who are fervently invested in the conservation of wildlife. They may wish to come at it in a very different way. Some of those are very isolated from our viewpoints, and some of them are very able to meet us halfway. They will never hunt themselves, perhaps, but they would love to consume wild meat and would love for you to gift them some, and so on and so forth, or have no problem with hunting. So I think this opens up a real question of social values and tolerance an acceptance, you know, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, and, you know, very often these debates or these discussions, uh, sometimes they're actual proposed legislations, very often it gets into the term ethics, ethical, ethos. Uh, and I think those of us who participate and have been supportive of this North American model for uh, our lifetimes. If we say conservation ethic, we might have a different description. You know, when we use that term, it it might be uh, trying to express something different than someone who who does not have uh, in mind their 
their use of the wildlife in a, in a way we do. Uh, I, there's a professor at Cornell University, Jim Tantillo. He and I sat on a board of directors previously, and uh, Jim would always push my mind to consider, am I talking about an ethic? in the philosophical sense, in the, in the true sense, or am I talking about my personal preference? Uh, and I think it's good for all of us to think about that on an individual basis, but then there's the collective ethic, the, you know, what, what we as, as a society or we as a, a group of people uh, always hold out as, as our ethic. And so now we have game managers, we have trustees of this public trust, being asked to enact policy or change policy or continue policies with a whole bunch of different people using the term ethic, ethos, in a completely different... It's the same term, but each person is defining it differently. Is it even reasonable to think that our, our wildlife managers can be... <laughs> <laughs> can understand the human or, or should be required to understand the human dimension when we start using terms like ethics and, and ethos, stuff like that? Well, I mean, I think whether, whether, the, whether we can as wildlife managers do that or not, we're going to be asked to do that, as you pointed out. I mean, that's one thing that we can be assured of. Um, you know, uh, I remember, uh, you know, a... a, a a mature lady at the time, when I was in my early twenties, who was a, a lab a lab instructor in a botany courses that I was taking, and I made the comment uh, that she overheard, you know, talking about harvesting you know, wildlife harvest, mm -hmm. and I can still remember to this day, and that's a good number of years ago, her saying, "Mr. Mahoney," you know, and of course, you know, you came right to your taps when. This lady called out your name, you know, because you didn't know it was the same, same, same as being called upon by God. You know, I mean, this, she was kind of a revered kind of lady, very mature, and, you know, had a, knew what she was about. And uh, she said, Mr. Mahoney, you don't uh, sow and you don't reap. So don't tell me that you harvest wildlife. You are simply killing them. She obviously wasn't in favor of, of, yeah. of hunting. And uh, so you see that this is not even necessarily a new phenomenon. I mean, people had different views of this. I mean, John Muir used to say of his friend Teddy Roosevelt, you know, Mr. President, like, when are you going to? When are you going to grow up and put up your guns? You know, like, you know, come on, be serious. When are you going to, when are you going to become a man instead of a boy and, you know, put your guns away kind of thing? Yeah. So this, this question has been, has been with us for a very long time. And we have to remember that these different value systems are not even a product of North America in any sense, right? I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, you know, used to take the money that the patrons gave him for his paintings and his sculptures and his other works, for example, in military craft as well. Many people don't know that. Um, and he would go to the markets where people were, of course, selling caged birds, and he would buy the caged birds. And as soon as ownership was transferred to him, he would open the doors of the cages and simply let them free. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, and I don't think anybody is going to say that Leonardo da Vinci was kind of an imbecile. 
You know what I mean, no matter what your <laughs> viewpoint is. Uh, and so, you know, these value systems have been with us for a very long time. My own view of this clash, and it's, it's, a, it's a big, big debate, and it comes into this issue of legitimate purpose, however, in a very relational way. Ultimately, you know, I... Hunting, for me, is a challenging thing at many levels. It is incredibly enjoyable once one is in the physical space and the sense of awareness settles upon you and the sense of alertness, as Ortega described it, that really is almost incomparable. You, you are never as alert. I have, hunt, I have hiked and photographed and watched birds and so on. I've done all those things too. But this space in which you enter during the hunt, it is a, it is a space where all of the capacities of the human predator and animal are engaged. And this is a very, this is a very flooded, almost opiate space that takes over the human being, as many hunters, of course, can relate to, as many fishermen, fly fishermen and others can relate to. But ultimately, this question of whether we hunt or we don't hunt um, comes back to me to a question of human ecology. You know, I do not believe there is a difference between us and the wild others on this planet at all. I don't believe there's any difference between us. And I mean that. We have certain capacities which are extraordinary. So does the hummingbird, so does the elephant, so does the great whales. So, so you know, ours is just a, a particular dimension you can describe. We can put a, a voyager on Mars, but there isn't a human being ever born that as a child could be towed through the air from South America to the Canadian Arctic and then be able to repeat that on their own the following year, which, which innumerable billions of birds you know, are able to do. Uh, yeah. So I don't see any difference between us. And then some people say, well, if that's the case, Shane, and this is particular people who are anti-hunting advocates, they say, if that's the case, Shane, well, well, how can you kill? How can you hunt animals? I say, because if we believe that we are the same, and I do believe we are the same, I believe, therefore, that we have a natural ecology, and part of that natural ecology is to harvest things from nature in the way that every other animal species does. And for 99.99% of our existence, we did that. And yeah. I would be willing to argue that most of the horrors visited upon this planet by humankind really started after we stopped doing that, when we invented agriculture and all the rest of the things that towed from it. <laughs> and I don't believe that the 8 billion of us can go out and do this, Randy, because natural systems just can't support it. And we need industrialized right. agriculture. I'm not, a, you know, I, I'm not trying to be ridiculous. But as much as possible, where the human animal can exist within the natural uh, parameters of our ecology... I think we should try to do that even, even if we find it particularly difficult to kill animals, which many people do, by the way. Many people oh. do. 
and giving people who hunt. Absolutely, it is true. And so uh, this gets us into this issue of motivation. It gets us into this issue of legitimate purpose. And of course, this is what bubbles up many of the big debates over predator hunting, right? Mm -hmm. So now, what is your legitimate purpose? Is it for food? Is it for fur? Is it for defense of property? Is it for defense of life? You know, this is where people who are perhaps opposed to hunting, and even some who are not for hunting deer species, will question, why mountain lion? Why bobcat? Why wolf? Why, you know. You know. Mm-hmm. And you can see, you, you, you have to accept that you can see uh, why they begin to argue around those points if their view is leaning towards the anti-hunting mode in any appreciable degree anyway. And we have to be able to find our legitimate purpose, don't we? The non-frivolous purpose for these activities. And the hunting community will be very much divided uh, (laughs) over this, right? Uh, And and so will the non-hunting community be very much divided over it because nobody wants grizzly bears living in their back garden. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants mountain lions attacking their children or their pets. Right. But on the other hand... Those circumstances are relatively rare, and yet, so people will argue, deal with those circumstances as they occur, but why go out and harvest these big predators otherwise? This is yeah. a, and this is becoming a real battleground, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It's it's the place where I think in the hunting and angling space we we struggle to articulate it. There's a lot of uh, just difficult translating something that is so innate, so internal, and making it easy to understand to someone who doesn't immerse themselves in it in that way, but maybe they immerse themselves in another way. That's going to be our struggle. Because they have folks who, who question what we do have found that, hey, this is a very hard thing to articulate. Mm-hmm. And very often we can go and find examples that even us, even though only 4% of us hunt, among those 4%, a very small fraction of that 4% participate in some other activity. So it's easy for us to call that frivolous or it's easier for us to call that unethical or, or whatever. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that topic not completely, but but go to uh, one that I think is very uniting. Uh, it's one you built a huge amount of work around. Uh, that's the wild uh, har- the well, harvest of, of of wild resources. You know, you you have your work at the Wild Harvest Initiative. Uh, it seems that hunter non hunter only a a a far you know, a far smaller percentage of our public considers use as food to be illegitimate. In other words, the majority of our public, of the beneficiaries of this public trust, find that the utilization of food to be a very legitimate purpose of, of what we do. Um, and 
then if you want to slice and dice that, and I guess maybe today I'm into splitting hairs, uh, but <laughs> we, 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 we end up with topics that enter it of, okay, what about subsistence? pursuits what how is that different than the recreational pursuit because then people say well you know you could go buy your chicken down off the supermarket you don't need to go and hunt wild grass you don't need to hunt wild turkeys or you know you they sell fish at the market you don't need to go and and uh catch fish or you know we've, we we've heard it all and seen it all but it seems like the place where the legitimate use argument or the the opposite of that, the illegitimate use, uh, seems to have a much firmer ground when we're talking about uses for food, whether subsistence, whether recreational. Um, do you think that's a, that is just because of how our model evolved or is that how our society evolved? Or is that just the human condition that we, we all, it's such a basic need, we all realize we have to eat. I, yeah, I don't know. I just I observe that based on what the prior discussion was. Why is it so? Why why less controversial when we talk food? Well, I mean, I, I you know I think if you look at the debates over hunting, um, they're they're not so much anymore, particularly in North America. You know, focused on the idea that the activity is imperiling wildlife, Be, and and part of that is because, of course, the the way we approached wildlife, this model that we developed in part, you know, brought us to the point where wildlife is really incredibly abundant. And so, therefore, anybody who is philosophically opposed to, to, to hunting is really not able, even if they wish to, to argue that this is really threatening, you know, deer populations, for example, or elk populations. We have so much overwhelming evidence to show that that's not the case. Um, so, really, what tends to be the argument more and more, if you really analyze this, more and more the, the debates around uh, the use of wildlife in many parts of the world uh, come down to the question of the motivation of the person who is doing the hunting. It's not so much often about the end product, i.e. the animal itself, or the population, or the species. It is in some cases with endangered species or things of this nature, but in the main, you know, most of what the debate centers around is the motivation. And this is where we get into the big debates over international hunting, so-called trophy hunting versus, you know, other forms of hunting. And so, but with any form of hunting, the, 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 the questioning public are asking, what is your motivation? And what is your legitimate purpose? The human condition does appreciably explain, Randy, why we see such enduring support, despite we are such a minority, such enduring support in the Canadian and American publics and in other publics around the world for the idea of animal harvest, of wild animal harvest, if the animal is going to be consumed. Every human being is able to relate to this basic need. And every, human, <laughs> and, and every human being recognizes that perhaps there is no perfect system for providing anything. If it's domestic animals, lots of people have concerns about the conditions under which domestic, domesticated animals are raised, the necessities of close confinement, 
being that you know the animals have to be treated sometimes you know with with anti helminths uh, you know anti parasitic drugs or antibiotics or things of this nature or the kind of feed that they are fed they are worried about that the amount of fat that they put on their bodies you know that we then consume you know a lot of people uh, in that food space you know are torn between their you know concerns over the way domestic foods are brought to us in terms of meats and fish yeah. uh, uh, and this idea, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is you go out and you kill the animals themselves, which many people find a very difficult uh, sort of proposition as well. So overall, there's a certain level of tension, isn't there, in this, in this space where everyone can relate to the fact that we need food Everybody wants the best quality food that they can possibly have. Everybody wants to avoid diseases that may come or health ailments that may derive from their food, obviously. Everybody wants to live forever. Um, and so then uh, the, the, the question becomes, there's no perfect answer to this. And so when we see people who harvest a healthy wild animal, but they eat it, all of a sudden there's this kind of, well... I would never do it myself, I, I, you know, but I understand that. And, you know, we have been doing public opinion surveys in the United States in particular since the 1950s. And they, they've been variously conducted, but we do have a longitudinal data set going back to the 1950s in the United States of America where we ask people their attitudes to various forms of hunting. And this support for the legal, sustainable harvest of wildlife for food has consistently stayed at 75 to you know 80% throughout all that time period. And when you think about the massive changes in American society that occurred over that time period, that's a that that resilience is a, is, is is extraordinary. Uh, and you see all the debates over hunting and so on and so forth. And yet when you ask the American public point blank, do you support the idea of harvesting wild animals, fish or mammals, birds, whatever? that the individual intends to consume, you know, is that essentially what we are asking in those surveys, although the words aren't used, Randy, is are you killing it for legitimate purpose? Right. The, very, the very principle, the very tenet of the model, that's what, and that's what they're thinking about. Is this legitimate that Randy Newberg harvests an elk, kills that beautiful animal, and he eats it? Is that legitimate? And most people will say that is just like they say if Randy is being attacked by a wild animal and he does kill that animal in self-defense, well, I didn't want to see that grizzly bear die, but I understand why that took place. The idea of sustenance versus subsistence is becoming, of course, another bit of a debate, right? Yeah. <clears throat> we have a growing emphasis on indigenous peoples and, and local communities in the global debate over access to wildlife and the harvest of wildlife and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, there are still some indigenous peoples, tribal peoples and local peoples who really harvest wildlife for total subsistence. But most of us now are harvesting for sustenance some component of our diet, some component of our food economy at home and in our family and in our community is based on the harvest of wild food, not just hunted animals, but berries and fruits and wild medicinal plants and maple syrup and wild honey and all these <laughs> kinds of things. Um, and as much as possible, I think we should continue to try and do this. Um, 
but we do see uh, some tensions between this where people might say, if it's for pure subsistence, we have absolutely no problem with it. But to your point, they might say, if it's just for sustenance, why doesn't Randy go down to the store and buy that roasted meat or buy that piece of fish rather than kill the animal itself? It is, however, an argument that even many proponents, I think, are somewhat uncomfortable with because they still know that in the end, an animal dies. And the real question that hunters need to articulate in this kind of debate, in my view, is not so much the question of how the animal dies, because death is death. The real question is, how does the animal live before death? And my argument, or my my ethic, my, my value system, is that I prefer as much as possible, even though I accept we need industrialized agriculture, I would prefer to consume an animal that has lived all its life wild and free, that has never been hampered in his or hers movements and space use and choice of foods and interactions with, with, with nature, with wind and sun and rain and snow, and which has been able to breed and you know, go through, live, in other words, the life it was designed to live. I prefer to have the at animal eventually die to feed me. If I can, if I can make sure. that choice. And I think we need to articulate this argument, frankly, uh, Randy, more and more, because I firmly, firmly believe that it is this direct connection with natural wild food that will prove to be the most resilient component of hunting as society continues to evolve. And we have the empirical evidence to show that it has withstood the changes of the last 70 years in our societies. And I think it has the capacity to be resilient going forward. And as you and I and all the listeners will know, the world is becoming preoccupied with health, Randy. Oh, yeah. With health, <laughs> with longevity, with fitness, with... And, you know, the, the pandemic of COVID only reinforced this, did it not? Yeah. And we see where yeah. people turn. So I think that I, I think this wild food phenomenon, I'm very heavily invested in this idea, both because I believe in harvesting from the wild as much as possible, because it is my ecology as this partly predatory ape that I am and have always been, uh, but also because it places a benefit on wildlife habitats and natural systems that all of society benefits from. Those systems have to be sustaining and healthy for us to harvest wildlife from them. And I believe that I, um, you know, I sort of, to some extent, reduce the impact and the, the requirements and demands of industrialized agriculture by feeding myself that way. And I think that's a defensible and honorable position. Yeah. So as we're getting close to wrapping this up, I... Uh, one of the important notes I wrote down in the last hour was how all of this is an imperfect system. And we're trying to bring an imperfect system as close to aligned with the perfect values we see individually. Uh, and that changes over time as, as a, collectively. Uh, and as individuals, our perspectives change over time. So 
know, when we talk about this legitimate purpose, maybe I'll ask this in two questions. Uh, has it changed over time? And are there still today hunting and fishing activities that are inherently contradictory to this tenet? Um, I think to some extent, like all values and norms, um, uh, I do believe that uh, this too changes over time. Um, I can give you an example. Uh, in Newfoundland, we used to have a, um, an activity uh, where having introduced mink to raise them for their pelts in mink farms. Mm -hmm. We developed the idea that um, one way of feeding those mink that would make it more economically feasible was to feed them products from the sea, which we had mm -hmm. access to. Yeah. And, uh, but we wanted to find something that was meat for these mink, not fish so much. And so one of the ideas anyway that emerged uh, was that we would feed them small whales. So we actually used to harvest what we call blackfish in Newfoundland. We used to actually harvest pilot whales and feed oh. them to mink. Now, at that time in the 1940s and 50s, in our rural communities, which were isolated and very practical about how we interacted with nature and were totally dependent on those natural resources out there and sought any form of economic diversification, um, that was considered legitimate. That was considered appropriate. That was considered acceptable for most people. Mm -hmm. If today you were to suggest to Newfoundlanders that they drive a pod of blackfish ashore and kill them to feed mink, they would say that you are absolutely off your head. And in fact, it's you who should be driven ashore and butchered as mink food. So what was legitimate, Randy, you know, 50, 70 years ago in Newfoundland, which is a very hunting and fishing oriented culture, that's how we survived here for 500 years, um, would be totally unacceptable today. So the answer to your first question is absolutely these norms change. You know, I used to ask hunting audiences all the time, and I've spent a lot of time with hunting audiences, as you know, and we, you know, I, I've made it purposeful to, to work with the, the end user of the resources just as much as academics and professionals. In my career, you know that about me, I, I've always considered that to be vitally important. Um, you know, but I've often asked hunting audiences, okay, um, please um, put your hands up, uh, how many in the audience would be comfortable hunting a deer? And, you know, pretty well everybody puts their hands up. And then I you start to, you know, ask them a series of questions like that. And then, you know, then finally I say, okay, well, you know, uh, how many of you would be uh, comfortable hunting a mountain gorilla? Ah, <laughs> uh, 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 no, that's not so easily answered. That's not so. Well, why not? You know, let's say there's lots of mountain gorillas. Let's, let's, let's imagine that there's, you know, tons of them. They're like, they're like Serengeti wildebeest. I mean, would, would you know? The point of fact is that there is also a series of norms within us all that sometimes don't get exercised because we don't think about them. So I think that there's also, not only do norms change over time, 
but also there's a range of norms that sometimes we don't think about when we label ourselves hunters or non-hunters or fishers <laughs> or non or whatever, you know. Yeah. Then I would tell them a story and I'd say, well, I've just come back from state X. I wouldn't name the state. I'd just say, I've just come back from a meeting with a state agency. And, uh, you know, this move towards primitive weaponry, which became very big, you know, bow hunting and then muzzle loaders and so on and so <laughs> forth. And I said, one of the things that they've done now is that they have introduced this law where you can actually hunt deer uh, by embedding, uh, you know, uh, an apple uh, with a with a with a piece of metal, and it's a, it's attached to a rope. And when the deer come to to feed on the downed apples and, and bites into it, of course, you you actually wrestle the deer in by the rope, and then you kill the deer with a knife or or, or some implement like that. And, of course, everybody in the audience says, that's absolutely bloody disgusting. That's ridiculous. I mean, what state is that? You know, who brought that stupid law in and so on and so forth? And then I said, actually, it's just a joke. I'm just asking you to consider hook and release fishing. <laughs> so, you know, then all of a sudden people understand, oh, my, well, yeah, well, they're fish and they're, these are mammals. And so all of a sudden you see the norms start to spread in that way within the single community. So the norms definitely change, Randy, and we have to accept that those norms are changing. And we've heard in previous podcasts this rise of animal empathy that's occurring around the world. Norms are changing, and we have to be understanding of that, but also realize that our own norms have changed at the same time. Now, are there examples of where things are hard to defend? I personally believe that these... um, you know, predator-killing contests and things of that nature, I do believe personally that they are very hard to defend. I don't think that, that you know, shooting as many of those animals as possible and uh, awarding uh, trophies or something of this nature, I think that is extremely hard to defend to the general public. And I think it's hard to defend amongst uh, a percentage of the hunting public as well. The question is... Where in those kinds of circumstances is the issue of legitimate purpose being, being spoken about or attended to? There could be circumstances where killing as many predators as possible might be legitimate. For example, let's say a group of fox make it out to an offshore island where seabirds are nesting. And, and, and they're literally going to kill every, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, there, right. there certainly are circumstances that would be comparable that people might say are totally legitimate. But do we have circumstances where the killing of wildlife seems to be somewhat frivolous? I would say the truthful answer to that is yes, we do. And many of those things are real flashpoints in the debate between non-hunters or anti-hunters and hunters themselves. And I would simply say this as a final note on that question. The hunting community and the angling community, but the hunting community in particular needs to keep the middle ground citizenry with it. We are a very tiny minority engaged in an activity that most people find difficult to contemplate in their own lives. And we have to recognize that we do need not to defend ourselves in the sense that we feel we're, we're guilty of something, But, you know, we do need to represent what we do in the right way in society. And to simply discard that reality and dismiss it, I don't think is reasonable. If we want to keep these activities with us, and if we want to keep the opportunities for future generations to enjoy them, 
with all the benefits, the incentives, the funding, the volunteerism, all the positive things for wildlife that emanate from this community of users, then we have to develop positions that will keep the middle ground in society with us. I hope that people who are even opposed to hunting will come to understand that some forms of hunting, such as for food, are legitimate, but we cannot run the risk of losing the support that we have talked about that resides in the general public over legalized, sustainable hunting practices. And no matter how frustrated that may make some in our community, we have to recognize the value of that, Randy. Yeah. I think when we, you know, most of the things that we end up in conflict over either within ourselves or with other parts of the society that maybe doesn't hunt or fish are these things about legitimate use, about motivation. Then uh, the reality is, I mean, it's like it's real that it's snowing here in Bozeman today. I'm not going to go sleep outside today. Mm-hmm. That's a reality I have for my own survival. I need to understand. And if you look at, uh, to your point of we need, we can't lose those people in the middle. Uh, there are realities as much as the weather. There's realities as much as everything else. And we have to say, here are the realities we're operating. Yes. One of those realities is that we are not the majority of the population. No. The majority of a society. So if you want to go look at, you know, the business school models of how do you negotiate from a position of weakness? There, every one of those, one of the basic principles is do not offend those who are stronger in terms of their position. And how, how do you find friends within that stronger group? If you want to look at it from a military standpoint, pretty much everybody you talk to with military planning will say, the first thing you do when you find yourself way outnumbered is you go find some friends. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. I'm saying that kind of in a general standpoint, but there are ways you approach being the minority in, in the perception of, of, of a bigger piece. And we definitely are that. And you don't need to be uh, a, a genius to realize that the mechanisms by which you sustain yourself as a minority is by making sure that those not those who do do not participate in the way you do can at least appreciate and understand. Yeah. And, uh, I think uh, one last point of something you raised there, um, we, we talk about these numbers, minorities, majorities, and so on. We, we should bear in mind, too, that we, we're hard-pressed to find a time in our European, North American societies that where everybody hunted, Randy. You know, right. We might have had 10 12%, 15%, 20%, 25%, whatever, but whether we ever had the majority, I'm not sure. <laughs> No, I, no, I, I, I would, yeah. I would agree. I, I think probably the one thing you know, trends of society is over our our continent and other continents is the urbanization, uh, and as people urbanize, they have, they they have a different perspective on legitimate use of animals, whether wild or domestic. They do. 
than if they are out there milking that cow, raising that little piglet, and someday it ends up on their table. Yep, it's totally and true. You, you, that, again, that's another reality we cannot deny. Yeah. But we are becoming more urbanized. You know, as we become more urbanized, the legitimate use question of, and that is at the core of this this model, at least with this tenant, yep. is going to be brought to us and say, answer this for me. Explain to me this totally. legitimate use. Within your own model, you say, yep. you want legitimate use. Yep. So we, we have to ex- accept that <laughs> that's one of the challenges we face. It ignoring is. it, ignoring it is to our own detriment. Yeah. Uh, not being intellectually honest about it is to our own detriment. Uh, but I'm with you. I, I embrace that discussion, and I, I fully believe that the food aspect that you and so many others you know, work on uh, is one of those places where it's it's a much easier example to show. Um, and uh, I don't like to say defend because sometimes people aren't. They're just asking the question for their own interest. They are legitimately interested. And if we just take the defensive posture to a legitimate, curious person, instantly we already have started down a path where either we want you to be for us or against us. And so I think the more we think about it, the more we try to understand and examine our own way that we interact within this tenant. Uh, we're probably going to end up with better results. In, in I would agree. Totally. So, yep. Well, Shane, we've kept them for almost, well, we just passed the two-hour mark. How, how does time fly this fast when we're doing this? Uh, I don't know. Thanks. It's like uh, it's like uh, catching flies, I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, we're going to do, well, if, if you're good with this, uh, I want to do one more podcast episode that covers the three remaining tenets of the model and i i think they all kind of like the two we did here uh, i think these next three all kind of fall into a good common subject area there will be a lot of overlapping connection and that is that under this model we allocate wildlife by law that wildlife is a resource held in a public trust arrangement and the democracy of hunting is a standard uh, that we use uh, so if you're good with that that's that's uh, what i think we'll do in episode number four absolutely well, i look forward to that as well randy so uh, we'll join on that one and plow our way through those three additional tenants of the model all right well folks yeah. thanks for being here we appreciate it Shane. thanks so much uh there's so many things and uh a reminder to people that we're, we're going to be circling back around because there's so much we maybe didn't touch on that a lot of people are going to bring points to us uh, and I hope they do but I have no idea how many podcasts this might end up with <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you raised your hand and said yeah I, I, I think that'd be good Randy you may not have known what you were signing up for well that's so. true but that's part of the fun Randy anyway I look well, forward to it thanks folks
for you.